Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patrick Boyle on Finance, a podcast exploring ideas from quantitative finance, examining events occurring in markets right now and financial history to see what lessons can be taken away, including interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world of finance. To learn more about the podcast, visit onfinance.org. In 2005, a Stanford medical professor, John Unidas, published an essay titled Why Most Published Research Findings Are False, where he showed that the results of many medical research studies could not be replicated by other researchers. This is obviously a problem. A subsequent survey by the science journal Nature showed that more than 70% of researchers have tried and failed to reproduce another scientist's experiments. Not only that, but more than half admit to having failed to reproduce their own experiments. During a decade as head of global cancer research at Amgen, C. Glenn Begley identified 53 landmark publications, papers in top journals from reputable labs, for his team to reproduce. He sought to double-check the findings before trying to build on them for drug development. He found that 47 of the 53 could not be replicated, causing huge problems for those trying to produce new medicines based upon the findings. So what might be causing this problem? Well, partway through his project to reproduce these landmark cancer studies, Begley met with the lead scientist of one of the problematic studies. He told the scientist that he had gone through the paper line by line, figure by figure, and redid the experiment 50 times and never got the published result. The scientist told him that they'd done the experiment six times, got the published result once, and put it in the paper because it made the best story. Such selective publication is just one reason that the scientific literature is peppered with incorrect results. Many blame the hyper-competitive academic environment as research compete for diminishing funding. The surest ticket to getting a grant or a good job is getting published in a high-profile journal, and this can lead a scientist to engage in sensationalism and sometimes even dishonest behaviour. Obviously, this is most concerning in the world of medicine, but the same problem can be found in all other areas of research. Incredibly influential and commonly accepted theories have been found in recent years to be false under more rigorous retests. In 2011, Joseph Simmons, a psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania, published a paper in the journal Psychological Science, where he showed that people who listened to the Beatles song When I'm 64 grew younger by nearly 18 months. The result was obviously ridiculous, but the point the paper made was serious. It showed how standard scientific methods, when abused, could generate scientific support for just about anything. Scientists have been shocked to discover that what they used to consider reasonable research practices were flawed and likely to generate false positives. This has been labelled the replication crisis by the press. Campbell Harvey, a professor of finance at Duke University, argues that at least half of the 400 supposedly market-beating strategies identified in top financial journals over the years are false. It's a huge issue, he told the Financial Times. 
Step one in dealing with the replication crisis in finance is to accept that there is a crisis. And right now, many of my colleagues are not yet there. Harvey is the former editor of the Journal of Finance, a former president of the American Finance Association, and an advisor to investment firms like Research Affiliates and Man Group. He has written more than 150 papers on finance, several of which have won prestigious prizes. This is not like a child saying that the emperor has no clothes. Harvey's criticism of the rigor of academic research in finance is more like the emperor himself announcing that he has no clothes. Obviously, the stakes of the replication crisis are much higher in medicine, where people's health can be at risk than in the world of finance. But flawed financial research is often pitched to the public, either through the press or by fund management companies looking to raise assets. Bad financial research makes its way into people's portfolios and can affect their wealth and the comfort of their retirement. While Unidas' 2005 paper has been criticised over time for its use of dramatic and exaggerated language, most academics do agree with his paper's conclusions and its recommendations. So let's look at some of the issues that he raised. In statistics, we don't try to prove that something is definitely true. Instead, we show how unlikely it is that we would have found our test results if the underlying process was random, a process known as rejecting the null hypothesis. This approach is based on the principle of falsification introduced by the philosopher Karl Popper. According to Popper, we can never prove that something is definitely true, we can only prove that something is false. Statistical hypothesis tests thus never prove a model is correct, they instead show how unlikely it is that we would have gotten our test results if the idea being tested was incorrect. The p-value that we calculate in statistical hypothesis testing is the evidence against a null hypothesis. The smaller the p-value, the stronger the evidence is that our results are not attributable to randomness. P-scores are used to help us decide in medicine whether a given drug is actually helpful, or in finance if cheap stocks outperform over time. P-values less than 0.05 are generally considered significant and worthy of publication. They tell us that there's a 5% chance that our results can be attributed to randomness. This 5% threshold was picked by Ronald Fisher, an important statistician, in a book he published in 1925 as being a reasonable threshold. Based on this cutoff, you might assume that 5% of the research results out there should be false that 5 out of every 100 results are false positives. But that underestimates the problem, and here's why. Imagine you're a researcher in a field where there are a thousand hypotheses currently being investigated. Let's assume that 10% of them are actually true, so 100 out of that thousand are definitely true, and the rest are false. But of course, no one knows which are which, that's the whole point of doing the research. Now, assuming the experiments are well designed, they should correctly identify around 80 of the 100 true relationships. This is known as a statistical power of 80%. Power is the probability that a test of significance will pick up on an effect that is present. 
So 20 of our true results will be erroneously flagged as being false. Perhaps the measurements were not sensitive enough. On top of that though, we have those 900 false hypotheses. Using a p-value of 5%, 45 false hypotheses will be incorrectly considered true. As for the rest, they'll be correctly identified as false, but journals don't tend to be filled with studies that find nothing. They make up around 20% of published papers, depending on the field, which means that the papers that eventually get published will include 80 true positive results, 20 true negative results, and 45 false positive results. 45 out of 145 published papers will be false positive results. So nearly a third of published results will be wrong even with the system working the way it's supposed to. Things get even worse when studies are underpowered and analysis shows that they frequently are. The term p-hacking describes the deliberate or accidental manipulation of data in a study until it produces a sufficient p-value. It's the misuse of data analysis to find patterns in data that can be presented as statistically significant, thus dramatically increasing and understating the risk of false positives. If you took random data and tested enough hypotheses on it, you would eventually come up with a study that appears to prove something which is actually false. Harvey, the former editor of the Journal of Finance, who we mentioned earlier, attributes the scourge of p-hacking to incentives in academia. Getting a paper with a sensational finding published in a prestigious journal can earn an ambitious young professor the ultimate academic prize, tenure. Wasting months of work on a theory that does not hold up to scrutiny would frustrate anyone. It's therefore tempting to torture the data until it yields something interesting, even if other researchers are later unable to duplicate the results. And therein lies the problem of incentives. Scientists have huge incentives to publish papers. In fact, their careers depend on it. But isn't science supposed to self-correct by having other scientists replicate the findings of an initial discovery? In theory, yes, but it's a lot less glamorous to just replicate other people's studies. Scientists want to find their own breakthrough, not check other scientists' homework. Additionally, many journals don't publish replication studies. So if you're a scientist, the successful strategy is clear. Don't waste your time on replication studies. Do the kind of work that will get you published. And if you can find a result that's surprising and unusual, maybe you'll get picked up in the popular press too. Now, I don't want this to be seen as a negative piece on science or the scientific method, because people are more aware of this problem today than they were in the past, and things have started changing for the better. Many scientists acknowledge the problems I've outlined and are starting to take steps to correct them. There are more large-scale replication studies going on. There's a site, Retraction Watch, that publicizes research that's been withdrawn. There are online databases of unpublished negative results. There's been a move in many fields towards pre-registration of studies, where researchers write up what they plan on studying and the methods that they'll use. A journal then decides whether to accept it in principle. 
After the work is completed, reviewers simply check whether the researchers stuck to their own recipe. If so, the paper is published, regardless of what the data show. This eliminates publication bias, promotes higher powered studies, and lessens the incentive for p-hacking. The thing I find most striking about the replication crisis in academia is not the prevalence of incorrect information in published scientific journals. After all, getting to the truth we know is hard and not everything that's published can be correct. What gets me is that if we use our best scientific and statistical tools and still make this many mistakes, how frequently do we delude ourselves when we're not using the scientific method? As flawed as our research methods may be, they're significantly more reliable than any other approach that we can use. Amusingly, around nine years after John Unidas wrote his essay, Why Most Published Research Findings Are False, a team of biostatisticians, Jaeger and Leake, attempted to replicate his findings and calculated that the false positive rate in biomedical studies was estimated to be around 14%, not the 50% that Unidas had asserted. So things are possibly not quite as bad as people thought 16 years ago. And science has moved in a positive direction, where researchers are more aware of the mistakes that they might make than they were in the past. Today's video is based on my book Statistics for the Trading Floor, where I conclude with a chapter on common errors in statistical analysis and how to avoid them. There's a link to that book in the description. See you later. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this content on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can find more like it on YouTube, on the Patrick Boyle on Finance channel, or follow us on Twitter at Patrick E. Boyle. Thanks for listening. Bye.